this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly non-fiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is. Or try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a Book Riot podcast and is hosted by me, Alice Burton, and fellow rioter Kim Eukera. We're recording on Wednesday, August 24th. Hello, Kim. Hello, Alice. How are you today? Um, good. I can't believe we have like a week left of August. <laughs> I know the Minnesota State Fair starts this week, which is like the oh, like end of summer. And I just and our the library summer learning program wrapped up last weekend, and it's just like what is what what is happening? Can I say I love a state fair, but I almost never get to go to them. Like I haven't been to one in probably literal decades, but my my memories are so positive. <laughs> I love a county <laughs> fair and a state fair. See, I am not. I don't normally go to the fair. Like, I've gone a few different times, but it's not like a big annual tradition for me. We're going because we have tickets to a concert. And so we're going to go for the day and then go to the concert. But yeah, I'm not I'm not normally a fair person, so I don't get super nostalgic about it. It's more just like everyone in Minnesota gets so excited for the fair. It feels like that. It's one of those topics where like normally we talk about the weather, but then like during the end of August, it's like, oh, tell me about the fair. What did you eat? And like, that's the whole conversations everybody has that's so amazing is it in minneapolis st paul yeah it's in the twin cities so and it's it's huge the minnesota state fair is huge uh, and there's tons of just logistics about it and everybody goes and there's you know fair stuff so So great yeah i think the closest state fair to chicago is the wisconsin state fair because it's in milwaukee which is like Mm -hmm. an hour hour and a half Mm -hmm. or just outside milwaukee and the illinois state fair is in springfield which is like Oh, two and a half hours? Oh, yeah, that's far. It's a little far. It's like southwest, like central Illinois. Yeah. Not that people need this info, but (laughs) if you're in the Midwest, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Gotta love. I mean, we're going to go to all the buildings. We're going to go look at the crop art and the – I love looking at all the, like, arts and, like, you know, the things that come from the county fairs, like the quilts and the all of that kind of stuff I love. So I'm excited about that. See some of the the animals – you know. We have different fair attractions that we're No, I I like it when it's all lit up at night. It's so ah, pretty and the lights are so cool and I like playing like fair games and stuff. Mm. Mm, yes, we do have different fair experiences or fair I mean, fair loves. <laughs> again, I think the last time I went to one I was like 18. So it's very possible that my mm-hmm. taste will have changed and I would love to see a good quilt. But uh <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Oh, uh, this is not exactly follow-up, but as a mention, I would like to say that my wife and I are obsessed along with most of the woman-identifying LGBTQ community <laughs> with a league of their own, the series. And I've watched it one and a half times so far, but then I've watched particular scenes like, I don't know, seven, eight times. It's just – it's so amazing. It's so gay. And <laughs> – 
<laughs> because of this, uh, Kim and I were talking before, we think next episode we're going to do women in sports. Mm-hmm. But it's going to be like, if you like a league of their own, here's some books you should read. Or if you like this, other- so you don't have mm-hmm. to. Like, I do not love watching sports, but I am excited about these books. So yes, check that out. I have not watched that, but your enthusiasm about it on Twitter has made me want to watch it. So I I need to do that. I just want Greta and Carson to be happy. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's a spoiler, but I don't really care. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to say Greta and Carson kiss in episode one. Oh, okay. Yeah. It just, uh, oh, oh, so good. And then Max's story and her thing. Mm, okay. Anyway, uh, let's take a moment and hear from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of When We Were Silent by Fiona McPhillips. So Louise Manson is the newest student at Highfield Manor, Dublin's most exclusive private school. Behind its granite walls are high-arched alcoves, an oak-lined library, and the dark secret Lou has come to expose. So Lou's working class status makes her the consummate outsider. That is until she is befriended by some of her beautiful and wealthy classmates. But after Lou attempts to bring the school's secret to light, her time at Highfield ends with a lifeless body sprawled at her feet. Then, 30 years later, Lou gets a shocking phone call. A high-profile lawyer is bringing a lawsuit against the school, and he needs Lou to testify. Lou will have to confront her past and discover, once and for all, what really happened at Highfield. Powerful and compelling, When We Were Silent is a thrilling story of exploitation, privilege, and retribution with themes of revenge, love, power, and secrets. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of When We Were Silent by Fiona McPhillips for sponsoring this episode. All right. With that, we will jump into our first segment, which is nonfiction in the news. Uh, This week's news article is a follow-up to something that I feel like we've talked about several times before because uh, when you saw it in the notes, you were like, this is still happening Uh, because it's (laughs) – sorry, that was a bad Alice impression, but whatever. It's fine. No, that was good. So the article is from Town & Country, and the title is Leonardo DiCaprio and Martin Scorsese are recreating a Devil in the White City series for Hulu, which uh, I feel like has been a news story a bunch of different times over the years, but this has, things have changed and there's more information, kind of, sort of. Uh, Here we go. So the article says that Hulu announced the project back in 2019, which that tracks. 
Uh, at the time, Leonardo DiCaprio was set to star as the serial killer Dr. H. H. Holmes, who is a person who killed between like 27 and 200 people during the 1884 World's Fair. In this article, it says that actually Keanu Reeves is going to star as Dr. Holmes. So What? Yeah. <laughs> I know, isn't that that's a that's a that's a choice. What? And it the article also says this is his first major TV role in the United States. So I I'm delighted by that. What's he been doing outside the United States? On TV, I have no idea. Oh, it was the 1893 World's Fair. So he was a serial killer and he built a murder castle. This book is extremely creepy, by the way. It's it's very creepy. So uh, anyway, the article talks about how uh, originally it was supposed to be a um, movie. Now they're with Hulu going to turn it into a series. It has been through several owners and directors and stuff. Um, but now the latest iteration is uh, TV series. The show is uh, production is expected to begin in 2023, and it will potentially release in 2024. So uh, the saga continues... Maybe someday we will get to say that the show has actually happened. <laughs> this is just, oh, gosh. <laughs> First of all, yeah, this this whole thing is, has been a lot. Also, not to, like, kill a very interesting story, but the Chicago historian Adam Seltzer, who's, uh, I've been on one of his tours, and he's so good, and he's so obsessed with Chicago history. He wrote a book about H.H. Holmes called H.H. Holmes, The True History of the White City Devil, and did so much research for it, and he he can confirm nine people. (laughs) You know what I mean? So it spans from, I mean, I think 200 is bonkers, Um, but it spans from nine to 200, and a lot of the... I think a good percentage are the people who, like the children that he was traveling with, Mm -hmm. which is, of course, very sad. But it's just, it's interesting, like, how these myths kind of grow. And I'm I'm interested also to see how much of the recent research the TV series is going to take, as opposed to, like, perhaps leaning into this, like, lurid fantasy of H.H. Holmes as this, like, I don't know, just a monumental serial killer. Yes. But yeah, we'll see. We shall see potentially in 2024. Who knows? <laughs> All right. So with that, we're going to jump into uh, new nonfiction share books that are out soon or uh, recently that we're excited to tell you about. So uh, my first pick is called The Mamas, What I Learned About Kids, Class, and Race from Moms Not Like Me by Helena Andrews Dyer. Came out August 23rd from Crown. Uh, and so this is a sort of like memoir research reported kind of book about motherhood and uh, particularly what it is like to be a black mother in a largely white uh, community. So uh, Helena Andrews Dreyer is a journalist. Uh, She lives in a popular Washington, D.C. neighborhood, which is uh, a neighborhood that's uh, gentrifying as she lives into it. Um, And so after she has her first child, she joins uh, a local mom's group starting on Facebook and then starting to after a while, starts meeting in person. Um, And she is the only black mother really in that group and one of the few women of color in the the kind of large moms group community on Facebook. And so um, the differences between her and these other moms, like 
don't come out initially, right? Like a lot of they're talking, you know, like about their kids and sort of this bond of motherhood. But then as time goes on, after the birth of her second child, um, after the murder of George Floyd and, you know, the United States sort of rocketing around race, their conversations change and her experience in this group changes. And so um, the book is a memoir, kind of a chronicle of her experience as a black mom in the United States, her experience in this group, her experiences, just being what that is, what that is like for her. And so she, um, she, it's a lot of her story, but then there's also a lot of like research and interesting history, um, around justification, around social justice, um, and some of these other like bigger topics that affect, um, mothers and their relationship to race. Um, and it sounds heavy, I think, but it is, it's very funny. She, she's really, really, um, has these very like sharp observations. She, um, just as a really, really, appealing and fun sense of humor um like very um dry i think but also like kind of mean and i like it so um it's definitely it's a very funny book in addition to being um i think really interesting and uh, uh i like the way that she uses her experience to like lead into some of these like much bigger conversations and questions so that is the mamas what i learned about kids class and race from moms not like me by helena andrews dyer Oh, that does sound really good. I'm glad it's funny because mm-hmm. it's like right, like dealing with this very difficult, yeah. frustrating issue. Yeah, I wasn't expecting it to be as funny as it is, and I started reading, and I was like, ah, this, this is great. <laughs> um, okay, my first new nonfiction pick for this week is "Raising Lazarus: Hope, Justice, and the Future of America's Overdose Crisis" by Beth Macy. Um, Beth Macy wrote "Dope Sick," um, also about. Uh, the mm-hmm. opioid crisis and uh, was then adapted into a limited series as is everything nowadays <laughs> uh but this is kind of uh this i guess i don't know if it would be considered a sequel right it's kind of like mm-hmm. here's what is now happening here's what i think many people were concerned about opioid use when covid hit right like cuz we already were ever there was this large conversation about Mm -hmm. opioid addiction in america and then you get a situation that is so stressful and people are stuck inside and it's like okay we don't have a a good picture yet like in 2020 we didn't of how that's that the pandemic impacted people who were already struggling and so this and as probably predicted addiction rates have um, gone way up like beyond where they were so in this, um, she talks through like what has happened since, uh, as with the first book, you know, kind of talks about specific stories of people, as well as going after the Sackler family, who essentially created this crisis, right, mm-hmm. by pushing uh, Oxycontin, and then bribing doctors to overprescribe it. And <laughs> there's a quote from Macy who says that they they masterminded and micromanaged a relentless marketing campaign for their killer drug, then surgically drained the company of $10 billion when they saw trouble on the horizon. So, like, it's great that their name is being removed from a bunch of things <laughs> across mm-hmm. the country, but uh, just to kind of give a better picture of, again, like, where we are now with it, how we got here, and what people are doing to counteract this crisis in their own way because it's a lot it, i think people are approaching it on a lot of different fronts mm-hmm. so that's kind of like you get this like little sort of thing of hope within this 
story of like overwhelmingness, if you will. So again, that is Raising Lazarus, Hope, Justice, and the Future of America's Overdose Crisis by Beth Macy. I think that sounds really timely, given that there's been some news stories about like um, settlements around opioids and that like local governments and other agencies and groups are getting money to try and help combat the crisis, which I think is really good. So I appreciate the idea of like more context to some of that mm-hmm. and like looking at it beyond some of some of the like more holistic ways you mentioned. Yeah, I think that that totally makes sense. And now I'm like, oh, I did read Dope Say. <laughs> Um, I was just looking on Goodreads. Uh, You know how sometimes you totally forget. I thought that I read a different book that dealt with the opioid crisis, but I read Dope Sick and I gave it five stars. So, oh, there you go. This and this is also really good. So so here we are. Um, Yeah, I'm glad that Beth Macy is taking on all of this research because I certainly would not want to do it. Sounds very a lot. Yeah, I agree. So my next book to talk about is one that I have to admit I have not gotten to read or anything. I I just saw it on Twitter yesterday, the day it came out, and I was like, this sounds fascinating and I would really like it and I haven't been able to like snag a copy anywhere. So, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. Uh, It's called Democracy's Data, The Hidden Stories in the U.S. Census and How to Read Them by Dan Bach, uh, which came out uh, this week from MCD. Uh, And so uh, the author is a historian, and the book is a lesson in reading between the lines of the U.S. Census to try and understand what the data actually means. And so um, he uses the 1940 U.S. Census to try and, like, do this story. And he picks the 1940 Census because it is a controversial data set that – was part of how we built a bunch of New Deal-era social programs, but also um, when World War II broke out, would be weaponized against many of the citizens whom it was supposed to serve, is what the book uh, jacket says. And so he um, uses kind of that census to look at how the census is done, the tools that are are used to create it, how it um, takes the like stories and backgrounds of so many people and tries to make them into this very neat like grid of numbers. And so he looks at the people who are census takers, how they are employed, what they do when they go door to door. He looks at the Census Bureau, uh, how people, um, especially in the 1940s, like labored to like take the data that was collected and actually make sense of it. And then he looks at, quote, these little points to paint bigger pictures, such as the ruling hand of white supremacy, the place of queer people in straight systems, and the struggle of ordinary people to be seen by the state as they see themselves. And I don't know, something, the whole thing just sounds really interesting to me because the census, you know, I don't think until maybe like this year or like the last census that I really appreciate the like complexity of that endeavor and how it is not just numbers like there are there's politics and there's decisions and there's policy that affects how those numbers work and what happens with them. Um, And I don't know that I appreciated that fully. And so I'm really interested in understanding that a little bit better. So I, I think a historical look, particularly at a historically controversial census potentially um, could be really interesting. So that is Democracy's Data, The Hidden Stories in the U.S. Census and How to Read Them by Dan Bach. Oh, yeah, that's super nerdy. It's super nerdy. Yes, (laughs) correct. (laughs) Correct. Every time I look at like the census website and it's like, how would you like to parse the data? I'm like, Mm -hmm. oh, my gosh, it's immediately overwhelming. And I just I can't. (laughs) But it's great. It's good. It's good. They data is important for stuff. (laughs) Showing trends. Okay. Um, 
My next pick is Eating While Black, Food Shaming and Race in America by Psyche A. Williams-Forson. This is from the University of North Carolina Press. Williams-Forson is a professor and chair of American Studies at the University of Maryland. And here is writing about food in America, but particularly sort of not only like stereotypes about like black people's relationship with food and like sort of judgments that people have about that, but then food's role in like cultural transmission and belonging and survival and all of this and what uh, black people's relationship to food has, which he says it's historically been connected to extreme forms of control and scarcity, but also a lot of creativity and ingenuity. And um, this is, it's more on the academic side. So it's kind of like if you are, <laughs> if you're like, oh yeah, I would like to get into some really research stuff about the relationship about like food shaming and race, then then definitely check this out. I really wanted to highlight it because I have not seen a book like this. Mm-hmm. And particularly like just like these two topics. And she asks like, why do African-Americans' food cultures and eating habits elicit so much attention, criticism, and censure? And the practices of uh, shaming and policing Black people's bodies with and around food arise from a broader history of trying to control our very states of being. And this assumed stance is rooted in privilege and power, which, again, I just feel like, you know, this idea, particularly with like, you know, racism and particularly in America, it's just racism affects everything, right? And so definitely food, which is such Mm -hmm. a part of our, our daily lives. So... Again, it's a little it's a little on the drier side, but interesting. Eating while black, food shaming and race in America by Psyche A. Williams Forson. That does sound like a fascinating book and yeah, a different lens to look at food and its relationship to systemic racism beyond like access to food and food deserts and some of those other ones which I feel like maybe not more common, but like I have heard about more than this particular angle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, very cool. I wanted to mention just one other book really fast. It is a celebrity memoir, which I love, and I'm going to look for an audiobook. Uh, It's called Walking in My Joy in These Streets by Jennifer Lewis. Um, She's an actress. She's known as the um, matriarch or the mother of Black Hollywood because she has been the mother in tons and tons and tons of movies. Um, Most recently, she was uh, Ruby Johnson on the show Blackish on ABC, which I really loved. And so this is just her uh, memoir of her life, which I think sounds delightful. And I I didn't look, but I hope she reads the audiobook because I think that would be great. Um, So I just wanted to mention that one. Uh, And with that, we will hear from our next sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by The Safe Keep by Yael Vanderwalden. This new debut is an exhilarating, twisting tale of desire, suspicion, and obsession between two women staying in the same house in the Dutch countryside during the summer of 1961. It's a powerful exploration of the legacy of World War II and the darker parts of our collective past. It's mysterious, sophisticated, sensual, and infused with intrigue, atmosphere, and sex. The Safekeep is a brilliantly plotted and provocative debut novel you won't soon forget. Also... It's literary enough if you like literary fiction while still being spicy enough for certain corners of book talk. You know the corners I'm talking about. 
And while at first there's a cool detachment to these characters and this story, the heat builds and builds until it explodes into a tale of twisted desires, histories, and homes, and the unexpected shape of revenge. Make sure to check out the new book. And thanks again to The Safe Keep by Yale Vanderwilden for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books for Young Adults. From number one New York Times bestselling author Jennifer L. Armentrout comes a book I have to tell you about. It's Half-Blood, and it follows Alex and her mom who have spent years on the run from The Covenant, a school where their pure descendants of gods hone their powers and half-mortal teens train to kill demons for them. When her mom is murdered, Alex has two options. She can become a servant for the pures or work twice as hard to catch up in her training. The second option seems easier, but it gets a little complicated, you see, when pureblood Aiden becomes her personal trainer. So falling for Aiden isn't her biggest problem, surprisingly. As demons close in, she must fight to stay alive, even while others around her are dropping dead. So again, Jennifer L. Armentrout does the thing when it comes to romance, fantasy, adventure, all those things. Other books are Blood and Ash, A Shadow in the Ember, all those good things. Make sure to check out Half-Blood by Jennifer L. Armentrout. And thanks again to Bloom Books for Young Adults for sponsoring this episode. All right. So uh, for this week's theme, we wanted to do not maybe a particular topic, but a, uh, I guess, particular subgenre of nonfiction. I don't know if you would or an age category of nonfiction. Um, we've done YA nonfiction before, but this week we really wanted to dive into middle grade nonfiction, which is something that I don't think we've done specifically before. Uh, No, no we've done YA for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But no, I don't think we've done middle grade. No, I don't think so. But you read a lot of middle grade fiction, right? Yeah, I love it. It's great. Wonderful. So I'm, I don't really read a lot of middle grade fiction or nonfiction. So this is really new to me. And I'm curious if like what maybe similarities you noticed between the fiction that you read and the nonfiction that we're going to that you picked up. Oh, well, the nonfiction I picked. So I tend to go for middle grade. That is very I like middle grade because it's very focused on adventure mm -hmm. and you don't get all of this like romance nonsense, just <laughs> mucking up the story which you find in YA. And these, I think, I I chose pretty serious topics mm -hmm. <laughs> that are very rooted in, like, the last 30 years, yeah. maybe, in America. Not America. One of them's in Thailand. But, like, you know, the, the modern world and, like, everything, as opposed to, like, the mysterious Benedict Society, which mm -hmm. is just, like, very smart children, go off on an island. <laughs> so, but I will say, like, in terms of other... Like, I, I almost picked, but did not, because I've talked about it before, um, Brown Girl Dreaming by Jacqueline Woodson, which I would say almost straddles the line between fiction and non, right? Because it's, like, it's written as, like, poetry, but also it's Jacqueline Woodson's sort of, like, story of her time, like, as a child. Mm -hmm. And that was very similar in vibe. You get, like, definitely a much – I think the authors try to give it a much more sort of childish perspective. Like, they'll use I – and like tell a story so it's almost like um it's definitely creative nonfiction. i think mm -hmm. they lean more towards that because it's easier right to like connect with that yeah it's just an easier reading level too obviously yeah. right yeah but yeah i don't know what are your what are your thoughts on this after having looked at some of these books yeah, I mean, I think definitely like the pace is faster. The it's they're very clear. There's not there's nuance, but it's not quite as 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 thinky, I guess. 
Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's very thoughtful. Um, I did. It was interesting to me. Um, as So as I was trying to find some books from the library to check out and like peruse and stuff, how uh, depending on maybe the library system you're at or the age category for the groups, you can find what, what would be considered middle grade in either like the juvenile section or in the teen section. Um, and so I was looking at, you know, lists and stuff like that. And so I'd pull them up and most of them were in our library system in J fiction, juvenile fiction, but I did see some that popped over into teen. So I think that this, if you're, um, you know, without like book lists or maybe without the guidance of a, a children's librarian, like this could be harder potentially to find if you like finding something that's going to target like the level that you're trying to get at, you know, um, if that's a thing that as a like parent or as a reader, you're particularly looking for. I think that makes sense because when I think middle grade, I definitely think, hmm, I was going to say one age range, and then I immediately changed it in my mind. I think I think like 10 to 13. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, those are important years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they're also like, there's a lot of change that happens in those years. And so yeah. if you're looking for a book for a 10-year-old, I think it makes sense it would be in juvenile fiction or elementary fiction. Mm-hmm. But 13, you're kind of like, yeah, that might be in YA because they're in eighth grade and they've gone through the horror that is middle school and, you know, all <laughs> yeah. this stuff. Exactly. Yeah. So I think I chose ones that I that would fall up more on the juvenile side than on the teen side. But I think there's a lot of range in there, which I think is kind of fun. So uh, my first pick is a graphic novel. Uh, it's called Yummy, A History of Desserts by Victoria Grace Elliott. And so this is a nonfiction graphic novel that is a history of dessert. So uh, every section has like a like a map and then sort of a that shows like important dates in like the history of ice cream and then the chapters go through and um, tell you like all of these sort of important dates in the history of ice cream um, there's some fun stuff where they have recipes and they have some sections on science where in this section it talks about like the science of how you can make ice cream or how ice cream how to you know like make it better there's like some fun stories about things like how the waffle cone was invented. It's just uh, delightful. It is so delightful. Um, the illustrations are super bright and colorful. One of the like sort of frames of the book is that there's these little like fairy sprite people that are telling the story. So they're like talking to each other, but then like also talking to you as the reader. It's just, it's so charming and just like very fun and easy to read. And like, it's very full of facts, which is another thing that I often think of when I think about like middle grade readers uh, is that kids love facts and being able to tell facts. And so this one has a ton of those and like fun, like cool things that you can tell people with the history of various desserts. So it is delightful. I'm enjoying it very much. Yummy, A History of Desserts by Victoria Grace Elliott. Oh, yeah, that's that's a very kind of like lighthearted mm-hmm. beginning to this section. So that's... Yes. That's a delight. <laughs> um, okay, so pivoting, pivoting from that. Yes, pivoting. Uh, my first pick is Free Lunch by Rex Ogle. Uh, it was a 2020 Yalsa Excellence in Nonfiction Award winner. So right, so right there, we've got young adult. And I think I would definitely put this on the older spectrum. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Th- 13 at the at the youngest for mm-hmm. so maybe also just like going up into high school at the main character so it it covers his and by character i mean it's rex ogle right but it's it's written like fiction which makes it very readable because it's like an eye 
story of when he was in sixth grade, but it is all about his family's struggles with poverty. The The title Free Lunch is because his mom tells him early on that he's been enrolled in the school's free lunch program. And so he basically talks about all of his feelings around that and a lot of shame and worry about being made fun of by his classmates and how the teachers treat him because he doesn't, you know, he has like baggy clothes that like, or like clothes that are for adults because that's where his mom got them. His mom is pretty abusive, sometimes physically, definitely verbally. So I, I saw one review where someone was like, I'm giving this like two stars, even though I loved it, because they don't ever address that this is wrong, that he's getting abused. So if you are concerned that that is not addressed, I would maybe just have a, a chat <laughs> as, as your kid reads it, because it definitely he gets hit by his mom. He gets hit by his stepdad. His stepdad abuses his mom. And um, there are some pretty disturbing scenes with, like, him taking his two-and-a-half-year-old half-brother in, like, trying to, like, protect him in their room while they're – like, his parents mm. are fighting and all this stuff. But – so there's it's, – it's very serious subject matter. Halfway through the semester, he gets – they get evicted from their home. They have to live in government housing. But I think it's not only really, really well-written, he does a really good job of putting you in this, you know, kind of, like, 11-year-olds, maybe 12 – mind. But also, like, I can't imagine how hard it must have been for Rex Ogle to write this. Mm-hmm. It's it's so vulnerable. And, you know, him just trying to figure out his feelings as, like, this, you know, he keeps, like, he, like, wants to, like, throw his lunch tray across the room and scream. And he's like, I don't want to be violent like my stepdad. But, you know, I have these feelings. And, like, and it's just like, oh, no, of course you do. It's like you're in this horrible situation. So it is – it's a really good book. I'm – I would not have looked at it if we hadn't been doing this segment. So I'm very glad because it's just – but it is it is hard. Um, mm-hmm. So, again, that is Free Lunch by Rex Ogle. Yeah, I'm really glad you talked about that one because – And, like, what a good book for a kid to find at that age, right? Like, in terms of building empathy and sort of, like, trying to understand experiences that other people have. And, yeah, that's – I'm just – I'm glad you talked about that one. And I'm glad it is a book that exists. No, that's a great point. Because, you – I mean, especially as a kid, you don't necessarily think – I mean, sometimes some adults, um, but you don't necessarily think of experiences outside your own. Mm-hmm. And there are just so many things where he's like, these kids take this for granted. And it's it's like a struggle for me every single day. Yeah. And, and yeah, anyway. For sure. Uh, all right. So my uh, second pick is called The Eagle Huntress, The True Story of the Girl Who Soared Beyond Expectations by Aishopan Nurgaviv with Liz Welch. Uh, and so this is a book... Uh, a memoir that is written sort of in conjunction with an award-winning documentary called The Eagle Huntress, which is about the story of a young a young woman, Aishel Penn, who is the first girl to compete in and win one of the most, de- most prestigious competitions in Mongolia, which is the eagle hunting competition. So in the memoir, she talks about growing up in Mongolia. She talks about her family, it's, uh, she talks about her deciding that she wants to become an eagle hunter, which is not a thing that girls do. And so she talked about, um, like her father saying, like, yes, you can, how she captures and trains her golden eagle, and then how she, um, 
enters in and wins this competition in the festival. She was the only girl to compete, and she was, I think, the youngest person to ever compete in it, and she won, which I think is amazing. And so uh, this book is just her story, and it's um, told, it's written by Liz Welch, who uh, traveled to Mongolia and spent a bunch of time with her family and a translator. Um, and so it is a memoir, but it's a memoir like interpreted and written by someone else. But it's really, really interesting. It has a bunch of beautiful photos in the middle, which I love so much, showing her in her home and in the deserts around Mongolia where she lives and with her eagle and all this other stuff. It's really neat. And it reminds me of, do you remember, did you ever as a kid read, they were, it was like this series of books that were about like princesses and stuff and they had these like it was like diary of a cleopatra or something like that you know but i know what you're talking about you know what i'm talking about yeah this reminds me of those in a good way in the sense of like it is like a first person account of this girl's story and i think it's fairly clear that like she did not write it herself um, because she's like a 15 year old girl but i think liz welsh does a really good job of capturing her voice and it feels very authentic and there's a bit in the back where she kind of talks about the process of writing the book. And it sounds sounds like she, you know, like wrote the book and then had it translated and then sent it to them so that their family could read it. And, you know, so like it's very it seems like it's been very collaborative, but like it's 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 got that voice, right, of like a first person telling you a story. Something about like the font of the book, too, reminds me of those books. I don't know, like it very much got in my head that I was like, ah, oh, this is one of those. But it's not. It's a true story. I just, I really liked it. I, it's, it's so interesting, just a completely different culture and experience. And just learning about that is so cool. So The Eagle Huntress, the true story of the girl who soared beyond expectations by Aisha Penn, Yergov, and Liz Welch. That's so cool. It's so cool. Like what a, <laughs> what a cool person. <laughs> Gosh. Um, also, there's so many like sports and competitions going on that I have like no idea about. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. Wow. Okay. My last pick is All 13, The Incredible Cave Rescue of the Thai Boys Soccer Team by Christine Suntornvat. This, I would say this is more on the younger side. There's a lot of photos, which I love. Mm -hmm. I just want every book to have pictures. I am guest on in that respect. (laughs) Especially nonfiction. I'm like, just like every other page, just give me a photo. Keep it under 240 and every other page is a picture. <laughs> oh, that's like, that's the dream right there. <laughs> My gosh. But yeah, um, so this was uh, June 23rd, 2018. I'm sure many of you remember this. It was huge news. But um, 12 players who were uh, ages, it's either 11 to 16 or 11 to 17, went with their assistant coach, who's 25, into a cave called uh, Tam Luang Nang Nan in the northern Thailand. And this, like, these boys, they didn't all go to the same school, but they were really close uh, through their soccer team. And they would go on these, like, kind of excursions. And they were known for, you know, like, they rode bikes up to the top of a mountain. And, like, this was not their first, you know, they weren't just like, oh, let's go on an outing. It was just, like, one of many things that they did together. And in this one, their coach uh, took them into this cave, but then... Soon after entering, it, like, really, really heavy rain started falling, and it flooded part of the cave system, and so they were trapped. And this is, you know, then the rest of the book. And because people were like, can we get them out? Is that going to be possible? This worldwide effort start, like, came into be, and it's just like, I love unity, and... (laughs) 
And that's so different. Like when it's like a global effort to like rescue these kids, Mm -hmm. I'm just like, oh no, my feelings. And the book is like kind of on the longer side, but again, does have a lot of photos. So that kind of expands the length, but also just really covers all of the the things that happened and the things that were tried in order to, you know, get them out. Uh, Spoiler, they all live. Um, some of, which is just like a miracle. Some of the rescuers did pass away while, including, I think, two divers. But what I actually love, in addition to the book, is on the Wikipedia page, there is a section called International, and they have like list, listings of the, of the different countries that helped in the search or the rescue. And then like descriptions per country of like what they did, like the things that they offered to it. And it's just like, it's really nice. <laughs> like, like the Czech Republic offered to provide these like higher performance pumps to help pump out the water. And just like that alone. I'm just like, oh, that's nice. But um, anyway, so this is again, one of those stories that like, it could have ended really tragically, but it did not. And I think that's really amazing. And also these boys and how they um, survived together and were able to just like make it out. And okay, (laughs) sorry, I just get like really, again, emo about all of this. So that is All 13, The Incredible Cave Rescue of the Thai Boys Soccer Team by Christina Suntornvat. That sounds, I remember that, yeah. And that sounds really good. And yes, uh, more pictures for sure. Uh, And yes, I appreciate a good we don't have we don't get a lot of feel good stories, you know, like really good ones. So that's that's always nice to to have. Yeah, there's that, and it also like talks about it like interviews the rescue workers, like the author interviewed them, and then it talks about like Thailand and like de- like science, uh, the, the like mm-hmm. the science of Thailand. That sounds weird, but you know, it's sort of like what's going on with the region and like the cave system and all this stuff, and so it's just. It's like extra. The geography. Oh, yeah. That's a good word. (laughs) (laughs) Professionals. Excellent. (laughs) All right. So that is just a very brief uh, suggestion of a few middle grade nonfiction books. There are many. It is a growing genre. There's a ton of stuff out there, but uh, just a few ideas. Uh, And so with that, we will wrap up as we normally do by talking about the books we're reading uh, right now at this very moment. Um, I am excited to pick up a YA fiction book called My Imaginary Mary. It's by Cynthia Hand, Brody Ashton, and Jody Meadows. They are three uh, YA fiction writers who have worked together on several of of these YA books that reimagine um, famous historical women, but giving them like magic powers and stuff. So they did a bunch about uh, Jane's. It's a trilogy of the Jane trilogy. And so they've, this is their second Mary book. The first one was about Mary, Queen of Scots. Uh, this one is about Mary Shelley uh, and Ada Lovelace. And in it, they are um, they have magic powers and they bring a robot boy to life, I think, is the premise of it. Uh, I haven't gotten very far yet, but I love Mary Shelley. <laughs> so uh, my sister saw this one and was like, Kim, you should read it. And I was like, yes. And it came at the library. So we're going to go for it. When you say magical powers, could you elaborate? I think they're fairies or fae. I, I don't, I haven't gotten to that part yet. And I don't have the book to look at the summary right next to me. But I think Got they're fae. So My Imaginary Mary by Cynthia Hand, Brody Ashton, Jody Meadows, YA Fiction. Going to go for it. Um, please follow up with the podcast about <laughs> your thoughts on that because I have a lot of questions. 
<laughs> um, that sounds good, though. I am doing the audiobook of The Hemingses of Monticello, An American Family by Annette Gordon-Reed. It's really, really good. Annette Gordon-Reed is an amazing historian. The audiobook is quite long, but worth it. She's not only talking about Sally Hemings, but just the entire Hemings family and how they sort of like, you know, intertwined with the Jefferson family and their roles at Monticello. And um, it also just like gets into the background of enslavement in America and how Jefferson was this very contradictory, like self-contradictory man who like, you know, believed in this, but also did this. And yeah, uh, it's really, really good. So excited to continue with that. So that's The Hemingses of Monticello by Annette Gordon-Reed. And with that, you can find us on social media. I am at It's Alice Time, and Kim is at Kim the Dork. Our amazing audio editing for this episode was done by Jen Zink. If you have a few minutes, we'd love it if you take the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. That helps people find us more easily, and while you're there, you can follow us to get new episodes the very minute that they come out. With that, I'm Kim Ukra. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast. Podcast.